This tape is being recorded for the Stratford Historical Society on February 8, 1964. We are going to discuss today the institution of our local form of government, the town manager system, with two gentlemen who were both instrumental and very active in bringing it about in the 1920s. They're Mr. Donald Samus, who also served as town manager from 1932 to 34, and Mr. W. Howard Wilcoxon, who is a local historian and has served as town clerk for the last 30 years. Okay. Uh, the other voices on the tape are Lewis Knapp, Jane Calkins, and Vivian Knapp. Lou? Gentlemen, I wonder if we can discuss the previous government of the town, the uh, type of government that we had uh, before the present charter uh, was put into effect, some of its history, its function, and some of the people. Well, of course, from 1639 until 1921, the town operated under the selectmen form of government with the town meeting, of course, uh, establishing the budget, laying out the program, which was carried out by the first selectmen. Uh, in the earlier days, of course, when the town of Stratford included what is now Huntington, Monroe, a goodly part of Bridgeport, the uh, number of selectmen ran anywhere from five to seven. In later years, after the town had been uh, cut up, they retained it to just three selectmen. The uh, first selectman, of course, acting as the administrative manager of the board. How was he chosen? They were chosen, elected. It was uh, a party program. You had uh, very violent fights between the Republicans and the Democrats, but uh, under the surface there was a lot of collusion. Lots of times the, the uh, leaders of the parties would get into a huddle and come up with candidates and they'd put a candidate that was bound to lose on one side and one that was bound to win on the other. The next <laughs> election they might reverse the process. <laughs> uh, there was lots of skullduggery going on in the, in the area and uh, the town's affairs were quite frequently very sloppily conducted, so much so that at one time they uh, decided that they have to have some financial control of what the, over what the selectmen uh, would do, and so then they, they uh, or inaugurated a uh, finance committee for the town so that some of our uh, more stable town fathers who didn't have any dollar stake in the program could uh, see to it that the townsfolk got a little better run for their money. Uh, the uh, selectman form uh, uh, worked out beautifully in the days when Stratford was primarily a farming area because the most of the first selectmen were fellows who had farms of their own and could spare the time from their farm work to run the town's affairs. Actually, the town's business consisted primarily of uh, assessing and collecting taxes, taking care of the town poor, and taking care of the highway system, which was all dirt roads. It meant uh, we had to have scrapers and we had to have gravel trucks, uh, horse-drawn vehicles, and that was the way the thing went. The fact of the matter is, the only real piece of road machinery we had was a steam road roller that was bought by our first town manager. Uh, Back in about 1910, when this form of government first 
became effective in the United States, some of the local people seemed to be very much interested in it, and I got interested in it myself. And Are you uh, referring to the uh, council manager the council form? manager form. And uh, so there was a lot of, of street conversation on the subject over period, uh, well, it preceded World War One. When World War One was over, there were a lot of young fellows uh, like myself, Harold Delacour, uh, Harry Flood, I don't know, maybe uh, a dozen or more, uh, who were taken into the, the Republican Town Committee because they thought that our uh, veteran background would be helpful in their election program. And the uh, first election that we participated in was, succeeded in electing Jim Lally as the, as the first selectman. Uh, Jim was uh, quite a character. He had two horses and a dump tr a wagon, and uh, he used to work for the town a great deal prior to this time. He was famous for one thing, that he could uh, chew tobacco and spit and land in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> and he used to sit at his desk in the town hall with his feet on the desk, and if some lady came in and asked questions or something, he would uh, uh, continue to sit there with his feet on the desk, maybe have his hat on, and uh, in between uh, conversations he'd be hitting the spittoon <laughs> accurately <laughs> with his tobacco shoes. <laughs> well, the uh, first uh, veteran aide to the Republican Town Committee was quite successful, and they thought that they better keep the veterans busy, so they decided to have some special committees who would uh, uh, carry on between elections so that they wouldn't lose their their enthusiasm and their, their working habits. And uh, a committee was uh, appointed consisting of uh, Roy Lewis of the H.J. Lewis Oyster Company, who lived then in the old uh, William Samuel Johnson house at the corner of uh, Main and Broad Street. Uh, Ralph Sherwood, who at that time lived up at Paradise Green, and uh, myself, and we, our, our task was to uh, review the uh, existing town charter, uh, the rules and regulations, and see what needed to be done in the way of alterations at the next legislature in relation to the financial side of the charter. We had our, a couple of meetings and then finally got disgusted and decided that what's the use of patching up an old quilt? Let's make a new one. So then we decided that we'd prefer uh, and, and uh, present a new modern charter. And we got the information from the National Municipal League and uh, made a uh, report to the next meeting of the town committee that we thought the thing to do was to abandon our present charter and take on the council manager plan. Well, the uh, Shang Wheeler was the moderator of the town committee and uh, he said you've heard the report what do you do with it and Ivan Morehouse got up and he said I think these fellows are out of order they weren't told to do this at all and uh, I moved the committee to be discharged and with uh, uh, a kick in the pants <laughs> <laughs> so they did they voted us out well when the meeting was over this meeting was in the in the uh, 
upstairs part of, of the Stratford Grill, I guess you call it, the one down near the railroad or down near the theater. And uh, we came down onto the sidewalk and we stood there talking, Ralph and Roy and myself, and we decided, well, listen, if they don't want it, heck with them, we'll go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> so we went into a, another meeting later on and decided to organize a charter committee of a hundred prominent citizens, which we had no difficulty doing at all, and that was the beginning of it. Roy was the man with the pot of money, so he paid the bills for bringing on Dr. Hatton, who was then recognized as the outstanding expert in municipal government from uh, uh, Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And uh, we took the National Municipal League's model charter and altered it to suit Stratford and Connecticut statutes. And then we campaigned all over town to get the thing accepted. We had to put in a call for a town meeting. The town meeting was ultimately held. I used to go around and speak to everybody that listened, sewing circles and church groups and civic groups and all that sort of thing. We didn't have PTAs in those days. At least if they did, I didn't know it. And uh, we had our town meeting. And in the course of the town meeting, uh, George Carey, who was quite a prominent citizen, got up and made a, a great to-do about what a failure this form of government had been in West Hartford. And after he got through condemning the thing from stem to stern, uh, I pulled a letter out of my pocket and I said, I, I'd like to have a word now. I said, this letter comes from Christopher Gallup, who was the leader of the Charter Committee for the City of West Hartford. And I read the letter, which said that they had had a long, hard campaign, they'd been successful in their campaign, and they expected to enter in on their new form of government about four months from the date of our meeting, which <laughs> made, made a perfect liar out of poor George Carey, and I think carried the day for me. At any rate, the uh, town meeting voted to present the charter to the legislature with a referendum to come after it was accepted by the legislature, which happened. The campaign, of course, for the Charter was a, a terrific uh, campaign. All the organized politicians in town were against us, and uh, I was told that uh, the campaign would uh, would just smother us, and that would be the end of it. Did you have both organized parties against you? Yeah, and uh, the uh, result was that uh, when they counted the votes, and these were paper ballot days, they found that about two to one in favor of the new charter. About how many voters were there in town? Well, I, I don't know, the population is about 12,000 in one town. Yes, I would say it's about 12,000, possibly uh, 2,500 voters. Mm -hmm. Were you involved in this, Mr. Wilcoxon? Well, I was involved in the election. We might interject here that the election was held on July 11th, 1921, and the vote was yes, 1010, and no, 564. And the charter became effective in October 3rd, 1921. That's just about exactly two to one. Well, we had we had our election and, and elected. Uh, uh, it was what nine councilmen, wasn't it? Nine councilmen when the charter was originally set up. And uh, the first district took in uh, the South End and Lordship, and Herbert Sniffen was elected. He was very much opposed to the charter and decided to run because he didn't want to have anybody uh, put anything over that wasn't proper. 
and later he turned out to be one of the best councilmen we had. Mm -hmm. uh, I ran in the second district because I was living on Academy Hill at the time. George Barnes ran against me. He was the most prominent man in the Red Men at that time, which is quite a strong organization. And uh, when they counted the ballots, I had one more than he did. <laughs> I said, well, George, you better have a recount on it. I said, anybody can make a mistake that close. He said, no, let her stand. <laughs> he was glad to get out from under, I guess. <laughs> so I, I had six years on the council. Well, the next thing that came up was the fact that uh, uh, quite a number of those who were elected to the council were not particularly favorably disposed toward our form of government. Secondly, they all thought that being a councilman that made you a sort of a super-duper uh, executive yourself. And uh, in due course, we hired a, a manager, Rutherford Hayes Hunter, who came from Ohio. Uh, he had uh, been the town, uh, I guess it was town manager or city manager of Ambridge, Pennsylvania. And it's from there that we brought him here. Uh, and you advertised? Yeah, nice. yeah. We went through City Manager Association and through the uh, National Municipal League. Mm -hmm. Candidates. Wow. You know, as a matter of fact, this fellow Bishop that you mentioned here, Bishop Hunter Donaldson Burnell. Bishop was the one that I preferred of the bunch, but uh, as I recall, on the first ballot or the first few ballots, uh, Bishop uh, led the way. He was leader. Yeah. Hunter was a compromise, more or less? Apparently, I... Well, it, uh, it's very interesting the way that takes up. The result was we hired Hunter. Well, then, uh, Hunter was one of the fellows that believed in, in sticking to, absolutely to the rules. He lived according to the charter, and the council didn't. <laughs> and the first thing you know, there began to be friction there. Hunter was a little bit brusque, perhaps not as tactful as he might have been. But uh, and he, done, he did another thing that annoyed everybody. He wore a white necktie, always. <laughs> and he had more damage for that white necktie than you think a man could have. Well, uh, the first thing we knew one, one meeting night, uh, somebody got up and made a resolution that uh, Mr. Hunter was, had uh, bought some goods for the town and he hadn't used a requisition in accordance with the system that was set up and uh, recommended that he be fired. Well, that was, except to those that were in the huddle uh, before the meeting, that was a uh, blast out of the blue. And they'd come to find out, Herb Sniffin and I were the only two that weren't in the conniving. So we protested violently, and the, we had a, because the business, was, the former government was young, that we had a big audience at every meeting, and the audience got rather unruly about it. They didn't like it either. And for some months after that, uh, Herb and I were annoying the rest of the council by offering resolutions. I'd make a resolution, he'd second it, vice versa. And every time we did it, we did it purposely to get them in Dutch with the, with the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> the upshot of it was, uh, there was a citizens organization called the People's General Committee, which was uh, developed, and it was a, a nonpartisan group uh, the chairman of the of the uh, Republican Town Committee and the chairman of the Democratic Town Committee, both of them became active in this People's General Committee. 
and they practically rule elections and everything else for, I don't know, four or five elections running. Well, they had a recall election, and all these councilmen that had fired Hunter were were up for recall, and when the election was over, the only survivor was Jake Albright. Was he 5th District? Yes. Jake and Albright and Walter Keeling. Huh? Walter Keeling survived. Oh, yeah, Walter Keeling survived. Uh, incidentally, Walter Keeling uh, had one thing that came up that was very interesting. He came up with a resolution in the council one day and said, I would like to propose that no uh, citizen shall contact the town manager for any purpose. That uh, if they have any problems or suggestions or anything, they must contact their, their councilman only. Then the councilman will take it up with the council. Well, they actually voted that down very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Walter was a, was a good uh, councilman, and he was, he was particularly good on, on the financial side. Uh, when the new council were, were in office, uh, the uh, Hunter was rehired, and he stayed on until, what, 27, 26? I don't know if that's so awfully important, but in the meantime, he had hired an assistant uh, called Carlton Day Reed, who was a graduate of the special course for training uh, city managers in Syracuse University. And he came to us for a year as a part of his thesis, and he had to write up everything he did and so on, toward getting his degree. Well, when Hunter left, he stayed on after that, and when Hunter left, Reed ran the show until while we were looking for a successor to Mr. Hunter. And ultimately, after struggling for a long time, we appointed Reed the the town manager. Um, I left the council at the end of my third term, and uh, Colonel Herman, who was an executive over at the Remington Arms Company, was the chairman when I left. Uh, later, Reed left to go and work for his father-in-law in Maine, and uh, they had again to hunt up a successor. They finally hired a man by the name of Wright, who had been the city manager at Keene, New Hampshire. He had applied originally when Hunter first came. Uh, no, he applied before we appointed uh, Reed. And at that time, I was going to New Hampshire quite frequently, so I stopped in Keene one day to see what I could find out about Wright. And I pulled up to the curb in front of the city hall where there was a policeman standing, and I said, I understand you have a city manager plan here. He said, that's right. I said, uh, what kind of a man do you have up here? Well, he says he's uh, kind of hot-tempered. He poked one of the councilmen in the nose <laughs> last night at the council meeting. Well, I said, that's interesting because he's a candidate for, for a job down in my town. And I thanked him and went on. <laughs> I was going up to see my wife-to-be at the time. And uh, so when I reported that to the rest of the council, they decided not to consider Mr. Wright. And I was most surprised when I found the next council that hired him. <laughs> well, long about uh, uh, it must have been in January of uh, 32, 
Ray Baldwin and Chang Wheeler and uh, Vernon Morehouse, who was the chairman of the council, came to my house, sat on my front porch and wanted to know if I would take on the town manager's job. And I told them that uh, as long as there was a man on the job, I wasn't going to have anything to do with it because I wouldn't be a party to running anybody out of a job in the Depression. Although I was out of a job myself at the time. The company I worked for in New Haven had sold out and uh, I stayed with the new company for about nine months and then pulled out entirely. See, at this time Mr. Wright was town manager. He was town manager, right? yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they said, well, we're going to fire him at the meeting uh, anyway, so whether you take it or not. I said, well, after he's fired, I'll talk turkey with you. So uh, they fired him and they appointed me the same night. Then came up and told me about it. So I went on the job and stayed for three years. And you were the first local man, uh, started That's this right. tradition of having local That's men right. uh, take the job. And uh, it was shortly after that. We, of course, were in, in, in uh, terrible straits financially. Uh, we didn't have money enough to run the show. and I hadn't been on the job but a few weeks before I found we didn't have any money to pay school teachers or the payrolls anywhere. And I made an appeal to the public through the papers to pay their taxes in anticipation of, of having a tax bill. And the first person that came in was David Booth. And he said, Don, I understand you need some money. I said, then how? Uh, if we're going to pay the school teachers, we've got to find money somewhere. I said, we can't borrow from the Stratford Trust Company. It's our normal source for borrowing against taxes, but they won't lend us anything. So. Uh, he said, well, maybe this will help. And he handed me over a check for $5,000. I said, let's take that into John uh, Wilcoxon, who was the town treasurer at the time and director of finance. So we crossed the hall into John Wilcoxon's cubby hole and turned over this $5,000 check. And that was the beginning of, of Dave Boo's interest in, in uh, doing things for the town of Stratford. Prior to the time we had this form of government, he'd always been at loggerheads with uh, his neighbor across the, across the street, Charlie Wells, and some of the other uh, public officials who had given him a pretty hard ride, tax-wise and otherwise. But uh, Was this $5,000 a gift or no, a payment just, on his taxes? No, it was just ahead of tax, a taxes ahead of time. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, his taxes, uh, we had the uh, two... Uh, time payments then. So it was a, well, I don't know, his taxes must have run $15,000 a year or something like that. At any rate, uh, he owned a lot of land and a lot of property. You don't have a record of the grand list of that, that time or the budget? Uh, yes, I can get that information very easily. be interesting. I might say that in the early days of my, in the office of town clerk, Mr. Booth always offered his coliseum up there as a voting place for the ninth district. He always boasted the fact that he and his brother never voted, and therefore it was neutral territory. <laughs> <laughs> Is this true? They wouldn't vote themselves. <laughs> well, that's typical of the Booth. That's the only catch was you mustn't get caught smoking. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be hard hard to run a booth, uh, voting booth without having anybody <laughs> smoke around the place. But. Uh, I don't know whether I'm backtracking here, but I don't think we went into why you started with nine councilmen and changed to ten. How were those figures arrived at? The uh, folks that were on the on the original charter committee of 100 
came from all over town. And uh, when we discussed how we should choose our councilman, everybody seemed to think that each area or district in the town, there were no specified districts, but their neighborhood, should have a voice. Otherwise, they were afraid that all the councilmen would come out of the what is now the third district or the center of Stratford. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't get the first base except by having district representation. Although it was frowned on by all sound, uh, able uh, specialists in municipal government. And uh, so that was a compromise which has badgered us ever since. We finally got to the point of having one man elected at large, but uh, we've never gotten back. Now Cincinnati, who had the city manager plan starting in 1926, had at that time about 400,000 population had five councilmen. There must have been a great dispute about where the district lines would be drawn and how yes, the districts would be Yes, but actually it wasn't a gerrymandering program. It was an attempt to get an a equal number of voters in each district. And within a, maybe 5%, we had it that way, mm -hmm. actually tallying out on the voting list. But when the town started growing, it just threw the whole thing in a disarray because some of the districts grew rapidly, some didn't change hardly at all, like the 3rd and the 2nd, and uh, some of the uptown of the 9th district at that time had a very small population uh, in relation to the rest of the town, and today it's uh, way out of shape, isn't it? Well, it's, it's grown very rapidly, of course, and it's still growing. I take it they never have redistricted or uh, reorganized no. the district. No, they've never changed the line since. No, there was an attempt made, uh, well, perhaps 10 or 12 years ago, but never got anywhere. When they added the 10th, how did they do? The that was a split-off. In, in 1931. That was a split-off, and uh, I guess Harry Van York's was the first... Uh, yeah. First one from the Lordship area. And uh, he was a very sound, he was an engineer with Bullard. And he was a very sound man, financially particularly. And he tried awfully hard to get us working into a pay-as-you-go plan so we didn't have ourselves paying interest and interest and more interest as we're doing today. But he never got the first base on it. I suppose it was the old struggle between uh, uh, buying out of current taxes or making the future help pay for it. We had, during that uh, depression period, we had uh, a very heavy uh, program with the government agencies, CWA and WPA and PWA and the FERA and so forth. And during the time I was there, the, uh, we had as many as 700 men working under uh, project uh, plans so that uh, we got something out of our welfare program. Mm -hmm. Did a lot of improvements around town in the process. Roosevelt Forest was... Yeah, Roosevelt Forest. That was interesting because we had been buying firewood for these people and making them cut their own. We'd buy woods and, and cut the trees off and then uh, all we bought were the trees. And when I came on the job, I said, that's all wet. The thing to do is to buy the whole thing, land, trees, stumps, and everything else. And when you get through, have something to show for it, besides having the wood. So uh, we had a special committee working on that. George Webb was one of them. 
and uh, I guess Elliot Peck was on the list. At any rate, we went up there. We bought a few hundred acres up in the what's now Roosevelt Forest, and uh, worked on that basis. We brought in the state forester and had him go through the whole thing, almost tree by tree, and he indicated all the over age trees and all the diseased trees that we should cut out and then we set out uh, some thousands of evergreens up there because we had the labor and it didn't cost much to put out trees and since then it's been added to it and then later we opened up a quarry up there a town quarry and we the stone buildings on the uh, Longbrook Park were built from it and all those walls up there and the, the addition to the Legion Hall, kitchen end of it, was built by this uh, WPA labor with uh, that stone out of the quarry. And then we stoned curbs all over town with those same old pieces That's of stone. Entire, Some of them are still there. And uh, that made quite a, quite a project. Uh, the uh, thing that burned up the council was that I was appointed by the state to be the federal administrator as when the inspectors came down and that's the way we were getting we got more from Stratford than any other town of our size in the state of Connecticut with the possible exception of Fairfield and they had John Ferguson as a first selectman over there he was a good cagey Scotchman and he just had his hand out grabbing everything in sight well I was told that I had to give up the, the uh, either the city manager's job or the uh, federal administrator's job. Well, I said, that's easy. I said, the federal administrator's job doesn't pay me a nickel. And I said, the other one is paying me a, a salary such as it is. I'd have my salary cut twice and I was getting $3,600 a year. Oh. <laughs> and uh, uh, the uh, result was that uh, I went up to Hartford and, and reported to the, the state commission that ran the federal works in the state of Connecticut that I was through. Uh, they had a fit because we'd had a pretty good record down there. The governor had been down two, three times to see what we were doing and all that sort of thing. And uh, I said, well, I told them the whole story and I said, uh, uh, it's a case of a Chinaman choice. I, I don't, at this moment, I don't want to give up this job even if it isn't worth anything, but uh, uh, that's the way it's got to be. They said, all right, you go on home and forget it. We'll carry on. So uh, I went home and I reported to Vernon Morehouse that I had resigned the job up in Hartford. I was all through with it. And uh, then uh, the administrator in Hartford called up the chairman of the town council and told them that as long as they didn't have an administrator, they wouldn't get any more federal funds. Oh, and there was a great to-do over that. That must have broken Vernon's heart. Oh, well, they were adamant about it. And, of course, we, were, we had committed ourselves to spend a lot of money and federal money, and we didn't have any money to fill in the gap with. So what happened was that Vernon gets into a car and goes to Hartford and tries to change their mind. He said, we've got plenty of good men in Stratford that we could appoint. Uh, it happened that the chairman of this commission... <laughs> was a good uh, Democrat and the the uh, Vernon of course was a die in the world Republican and they just didn't he just couldn't see putting the Democrat in charge of the show down here so uh, 
They said, well, you had a good man and you threw him away. We're not interested in your picking somebody else. So uh, they said, well, the only thing left for us is to go to Washington and go over your head. They went to Harry Hopkins in Washington. And I guess Hopkins had been primed ahead of time, but anyway, when they got down there, he and Ray Baldwin went down together. They, uh, uh, Harry Hopkins uh, listened to them and gave them a very pleasant reception and all. When he got through, he said, well, I don't interfere with the way they handle things in the States. The things got to be settled up there in Hartford. So <laughs> <laughs> they got back into the train and came home again. And the next day after that, Vern called me up and he said, it's all right for you to be fellow administrator. Well, I said, I don't know if I want it anymore. <laughs> and, uh, he says, well, you better. He says, we need that money. So I called up uh, the administrator in Hartford and told him that uh, if they wanted to reinstate me, it would be all right. But they'd better check with Vern first. I don't know whether they did or not, but anyway, I went on and carried on. But that left a, a pretty rough... Uh, uh, situation for me with the chairman uh, sore at me and uh, trying to pick a fight every time we turned around. So I finally decided that the best thing to do was to get out. I made two or three applications for manager's jobs, uh, one in New Jersey and one in New York State and some other by mail. And uh, then out of a clear sky I got this invitation to go back into industry, which I promptly did. Uh, Bill Shea, who was my uh, director of finance, a successor to uh, John Wilcoxon when he retired, was made temporary manager, and he took over on the 1st of January in 35, and ultimately was uh, made permanent manager, and he stayed on the job until he died. And then... Uh, 1945. Yeah, then uh, I guess Harry came on directly after that, didn't he? There's no, nobody yes, in between. Harry Fuller. Yeah. Harry Flood. Yeah. Harry Flood. I think Howard knows more about the things that happened after that uh, than I would because he's right, right in the town hall. I missed out on the new town hall by a couple of years. They built the new one right after I got out of there. So all my experiences were in the old brick building which has since disappeared. Yes, the new town hall, of course, is a PWA project, in which, as I recall, the government contributed about 145,000 of the 250,000 uh, 250, cost, which uh, incidentally included all the equipment. It would be difficult now to build a building for under a million dollars. There was considerable opposition to accepting the government money, but uh, the general rating opinion seemed to be that uh, if we didn't accept it, it was all going to the south and we might just well take it as long as we're paying for it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well that money came out of our pockets then. <laughs> we had some difficulties of course during construction according to federal regulations we attempted to put some Belgium material in and we were stopped on that threatened to withdraw the federal funds if we didn't. Well that's the trouble with this federal funds they take over your independence and in every case, now you take this building down here at the uh, University of Bridgeport. They use a lot of federal funds there, but they can't—they can't do anything the way they want to. They have to do it the way this, the Fed fellows want them to do it. Wellington Walker spent most of his time arguing with them about what he wants to do and what they want to do. In the case of the town hall, did we have our own architect and lay out the plans, or or have the plans 
made ourselves. Yes, the well. architect was a local architect, Mr. Uh, Wellington Walker. Of course, they had to be approved by the federal government. And the contract, general contract, was let to E.H. Bray Construction Company of Bridgeport. How has the office of the town clerk changed in the last 30 years, Mr. Wilcox? Just a lot more of it? Well, it, uh, it's grown considerably, of course, as the town has expanded. And, of course, there's a great many more duties that we're required to perform now than were formerly performed. Mostly it's just more... Every session of the legislature seems to think of something the town clerk can do. <laughs> <laughs> the funny part of it is they never wash out any of the old duties. No. It's just like they keep adding laws and laws and laws, but they never, they never annul any of the old ones. I think perhaps on this record it might be well to revert to the... Uh, uh, selectman former government and say that in 1913 it was supplemented by a special act which provided for a direct primary in the Board of, board of Finance. Mm -hmm. Under that direct primary act, anybody that wished to uh, run for any office just simply went out and got a petition signed by 25 electors and he was a candidate and they held the primary and of course the high man in the primary got the nomination. That done away with the old stuffed caucus. Mm -hmm. What did the selectmen do, by the way? Uh, earlier when we spoke of them, I meant to ask whether they were a combination councilman manager. That is the first selectman. No, the, uh, the first selectman was practically, as you might say, the manager of the town. That is, he carried on the uh, program of road construction, took care of the town poor. Uh, because the board of selectmen, of course, with the town clerk, uh, made voters. In fact, he carried on practically the whole program of the town. He must have been quite a political plump. <laughs> Didn't pay too much. <laughs> <laughs> I think also it might be well to revert back to Jim Lally and, uh, and record the fact that in 1917, I believe it was, when we had a very severe winter here and it was very difficult, uh, to get coal that uh, Jim Lally contracted on his own with his own funds for carload lots of coal which were distributed among the town poor. And Lally, I don't think Jim ever got all of his money back. <laughs> Lally was the last of our first selection. Yeah. yeah. Right. He was the last man. Mm -hmm. Well, he was quite a character. He certainly had a good heart. I can see him now sitting in his office with his feet up on the desk, the old top desk. <laughs> <laughs> The town government... Generally on the back of his head. <laughs> town government, uh, both under the first selectman and uh, then later uh, under the uh, town manager form of government, was carried out in the old town hall. Would one of you fellows or both of you care to describe the old town hall and what you remember of it? Well, the old town hall was a three-story building with no basement under it. And uh, it had been built as a Masonic temple. And the presumption is that it was too much for their blood and they couldn't support it, so they ganged up on the townsfolks and sold it to the town. For $12,000. And then they, <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they occupied the top floor for their Masonic performances. I went to dancing school on that top floor in the old days. They had a carpet on the floor. And uh, then the, uh, the first floor was... Uh, 
at least in my time, it was a it was a big hall, and then behind that was the the uh, selectman's office, and behind that was a little jail with a couple of cells in it. And later on, when we had a regular town court, we had the town court sitting in that same room behind the meeting hall. The second floor, I don't remember what they used that for. The second floor was leased out to Redmond for many years. Well, that was before they built the, before took the, over the neighborhood church. The neighborhood church. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, the, the town business went into the, into the second floor before I went on the job. Spread into that area, and then for a heating system, we put uh, uh, boilers in the back of the firehouse next door, and ran the pipes across into the other building. For and the also record, we mentioned the old uh, lockup, which stood just at the northeast corner of the town hall, and on one occasion, a man with no legs surprised the bars out with his crutches and got away. <laughs> <laughs> well. I don't think that the thing was too structurally sound to start with. It was a brick building and old, and probably the mortar was uh, skinned when it was put in. I think you could almost kick your way out of the thing. For the record, the building stood on the west side of Main Street where the Connecticut Turnpike crosses over Main Street. Street. I don't know the and the firehouse was a wooden building just south of it, next door to it. Yeah, there was a, was a walk between the two buildings and the steam pipes went over your head when you walked in there. And all the business had to be conducted from the back door of the town hall. Mm -hmm. The United States Post Office had the uh, front of the first floor in later years, didn't it? In later yeah. years, yes, after the... Uh, after the town went up to the fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they had... They came in there as an emergency proposition after the old house burned down, didn't they? Yeah. I think the American Legion burned the house down. Nobody admits it, but, uh, <laughs> but they had they had a card game going up there, and they, when they went home, uh, it wasn't too long after that, and the building was all ablaze. Which house was this? Well, it was right across from Methodist Church. The old Selleck Mansion. It was it really was originally it was moved. Uh, Stood so right away. So that they place. made room for that little roadway that runs in alongside of. Uh, Dennis and Darcy. Mm, the road is called Selleck Place. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I had gone, gone down to uh, to Baltimore to visit that week while the fire was on, so I missed it. But they had not only all Stratford's apparatus, but half of Bridgeport, too, I guess. They, uh, it was a January... It was a terrifically cold night. Cold I remember. Night and a lot of wind. We had to keep raising the hose up from the ground to keep it from freezing. <laughs> <laughs> that house had been used as post office and as uh, Legion the Legion upstairs. headquarters Legion. before the uh, the uh, Gray Stone building uh, south of the yeah. library yeah. was constructed. I see. Sherman Reed had rooms up on the third floor. Yeah. Sherman nearly burned to death. <laughs> well, I think somebody tossed a cigarette in the wastebasket and went open, shut the door, and went home. Something like that. You know how frequently somebody that gets a streak of cleaning up. They go around and toss all the all the uh, ashtrays into the wastebasket. Maybe the, some of the cigarettes in the ashtrays aren't dead out. Who did you say left on the third floor? Peggy Reed. She was on the staff of the old Stratford News. Yeah, she was a character. <laughs> Drunk most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, but Mike used to be pretty good at that himself. 
all these old characters are, are dead and buried now. I see the other day Mike listed this died in New Haven. Are dead and buried now. I see the other day Mike listed this died in New Haven. He was sick. He followed. He followed uh, Peck on the uh, Stratford News, didn't he? Yes, it was established by Elliot Peck, and Mike Good took it over. I think there's another subject while we have you gentlemen here, and that's the founding of the Historical Society in Stratford. Well, Howard has a very fine write-up on that in the Stratford history. The only thing that isn't in the history is the fact that. Uh, the women on the hill, Mrs. Delacour and Mrs. Clinton and my mother, used to talk about it a great deal, particularly after Miss Celia Curtis died. She was the younger sister, she's quite an artist, and she got up one morning and decided to poke up the fire in the in the parlor. And she went down and she had on a uh, an outing flannel bathrobe, and in poking the fire, the bathrobe caught fire, and. Uh, I think both of them were in the 80s then, weren't they, Arn? Because Miss Celia didn't yes, live too long after that. And uh, she let out a shriek, and uh, I think uh, Miss Celia was sick at the time, and they had a colored girl in the house. And she beat out the flames, and then came rushing over to our house and, and uh, told what had happened. And of course, that created a terrific commotion. It was about 7 o'clock in the morning. We got Dr. Lewis down there, who was related to the Curtises, and uh, uh, by the time he got there, she had died. This was Miss Cornelia. Miss Cornelia. And then from then on, Miss Cedar had no one to leave these things to, this house and everything there was, except the doctor's family, which wasn't too close. And they didn't need it anyway. And uh, so uh, it wasn't, it didn't take too much persuasion to get her the idea that this would be a grand thing to preserve all this stuff for the town forever. And uh, the uh, idea culminated in organizing the, the uh, Historical Society. It was, it was uh, I think it was the 14th of January when they got their papers out, if I remember your record, Howard. And on the, 17th, on the 22nd of January, Judge Curtis, who was the Superior Court Justice of the State of Connecticut, who lived where the Red Cross building is now, called me down to the house, and when I got down there, he told us about this, and he said, you three fellows are trustees, his son, and Harold Delacour, and myself. And uh, he said, here are the deeds for it, and it's up to you to take over when Miss Celia dies. And when there is a historical society, well healed enough to guarantee that the building will be maintained, then you turn it over. And I've got five years in which to dig up the money. So they went out and and uh, scratched up until they had, uh, I think it was, what, $14,000, which we figured was adequate because it wouldn't be taxed after Miss Curtis died. And uh, she was supposed to have the life use of the place and pay all the bills as long as she lived. She died in November, the 14th of November, I think it was, of that same year, 1925. And uh, then the Historical Society became the 
tenant of the property, which relieved us of a lot of things. But the first thing we did before we actually turned the deeds over to them was to take the old front porch off, which was a rather a monstrosity, and it had been put on. About 1890. That was put on about the time that uh, this fellow Wheeler was Wheeler, it, that was yeah. trying to. John Wheeler, John B. Wheeler. He, he was very much in love with Mrs. Hudson, who at that time lived in the Johnson house, and I think she was one of the Johnson tribe. Yeah, she was a Johnson. And uh, all her all her men folks had been professionals, either doctors or lawyers or preachers or teachers, professors. And Wheeler had made his money, and he had plenty of it, in uh, the, uh, I believe, in the food business in New York City. And so he was a merchant. And he had courted her for years, and finally bought the house, and made alterations in it. He put the bulge on the kitchen and the upstairs on the back, and he put the porch on the back corner. We've taken off since. He did a lot of things to made it over. He put all that ceiling and stuff on the inside to cover up what we had to uncover. And then after he got the house all finished, he went to Mrs. Hudson and proposed to her and told her he'd fix this house up so that she could go up there and live with him. And she thanked him profusely. She, she said that she was very, uh, she didn't say she was in love with him, but she said that she thought a great deal of him or something like that. But she said, you know, we... Johnsons don't uh, marry into the trades. <laughs> Bing. <laughs> so he was he was jilted right then and there. And that was shortly after that when the Curtises bought the place. Mm -hmm. I know when they first came there. Uh, actually, when we built our house in 1889, uh, we had to use their well for a while. And then uh, a little later, we put up a windmill with a big tank up above the house, and uh, we pumped either from the well, we had our own well then, or from the cisterns. We had two big cisterns that took the roof drainage, which gave us soft water for laundry and that sort of thing. And in those days you weren't too particular, so we, we drank the water, whether it was cistern or well water, to make <laughs> any difference. And we piped it over to her house, so she had running water too. And as a kid I used to take care of her kitchen stove and take up the ashes and bring up the wood and the coal. And and do the chores around the place before and after school. We used to carry our mail for her. We always had to get our own mail at the post office and carry it home. And who was this who lived there then? This was Celia Curtis and our sister, mm -hmm. Canada. Both, both were there at this yeah. time. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, so that before the five years were up, we had gotten rid of the front porch, which was a two-story porch. And Tommy Joyce, local carpenter had did the job and uh, then when the five years were up we turned the deeds over to the historical society and it's been functioning ever since mm -hmm. but they and when they started this campaign for members and for uh, money I think they had a hundred and some odd members right off the bat 133 or some such figure so that uh, that's how the thing came into being. Every one of the old ladies that, that really provided the germ for this project are dead and buried now. Well, gentlemen, we've had an interesting session both on town government and on the Stratford Historical Society. We thank you very much.